Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talk Radio. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, lovely to chat to you again. Thank you very much. Good morning. Yeah, I want to start with the stem cell revolution. I'm always fascinated by uh, human endeavors to prolong life, to keep us healthy. A team of Boston and Japanese researchers stunned the scientific world last uh, Wednesday with uh, an unexpected way to create stem cells. Can you tell us about that? Certainly. This was a paper that was published in the journal Nature. And it was by researchers, as you say, Boston and Japan. And they made the unusual discovery that if you take mature tissue and you put it into an acid environment, so you put the pH down, down to about 5.5, 5.6, and you immerse these cells to within, uh, I suppose, about an inch of their lives. They nearly perish through this treatment. When you then put them back into normal growth conditions again, the cells revert or deprogram themselves back to a stem cell-like state. In other words, they unspecialize and they become capable of turning into any cell in the body. And if you then do the experiment where you take some of these cells and you add them to a developing embryo, they can give rise to all of the tissues that an embryo can make, including not just parts of the embryo's body, but also parts of the placenta, which other forms of stem cells made by other methods couldn't do. So these cells are very, very special, but we don't know why they have this interesting capacity to be reprogrammed Mm -hmm. in an acid environment that needs to be solved and one piece of speculation from a number of scientists is that when the body is injured or the blood flow to a part of the body is interrupted conditions do become very acidic because you get lots of what we call metabolites made because the tissue doesn't have enough oxygen and it keeps respiring or um, metabolizing and it produces waste products that make an acid environment it might be that this is one way of the body interpreting an injury a severe injury and then producing some stem cells out of whatever cells it can locally in order to make good the damage that's been done in that region but we don't know yet and it's a really interesting discovery we'll have to follow it up Right, our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientists this morning? What is it that you want to say? Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Let's go straight to, is it Les? Les in Mondio. Good morning to you. Les, good morning. I've got a question, question for Chris. We live in, in South Johannesburg in the Mondio area. We're on solid rock, and we have fitted carpets in the house, and we have a runner in a passage which runs east to west. Every day, it creeps 10 centimeters northwards, and the other carpets in the house that also creep north. Sorry, Les, is your, phone, is your radio on? There's a terrible... Yeah, I'll go and listen to the radio now. What's your question? I think what Les is asking is why do the carpets creep north? Uh, I've got a rug on the floor of my uh, studio, actually, and when you walk in the door, 
uh, the and, and you wipe your feet as every polite person does. The carpet moves, and, and I've noticed in the last year since I mm-hmm. bought this thing, it always moves in the same direction, yeah. and it moves away from the door. So uh, until I reposition it, <laughs> I have to take longer and longer strides to get into the studio and tread on the mat. Now they put on the bottom of the mat these little dimples. If you turn the mat over and look on the the rubberized underside, you'll see these little dimples. And in my case, they're there uh, ostensibly and allegedly to stop it migrating across the floor, but it doesn't work. I think the reason is that because of the way that the carpet is made, when you walk on it, you make it fold or bend up a little bit, and in the same way that a caterpillar moves, by anchoring one end of the caterpillar, arching its body into a loop, and then stretching out and pushing itself along, I think the carpet is effectively doing that. And because people tend to walk on it in one direction... Uh, in and out, then it's tending to creep in one direction, the one direction it can go, away from where you started it. If you were to turn the carpet long ways, I suspect it would do it less because there would be more friction with the floor. But that's the experiment for Les to try. Mm-hmm. Chris, what causes dust that we find on our computer screens, on keyboards, tables? <coughs> what causes that? Well, sadly, Reedy, the answer is you. <laughs> but also me and everybody listening to this program because the vast majority of the dust that we see in the room around us is bits of us and the human body is shedding thousands and thousands of dead skin cells. I think it's something like thirty to 40,000 dead skin cells every minute. In fact, if you added all the dead skin up that you shed over a lifetime, it would tot up to be several kilograms just of dead skin and flakes of hair. And because there are lots of us wandering around in an environment shedding all these particles all the time, they, they land on the floor, they dry out a bit more, and then when there's a disturbance or just some heat comes into the room and creates air currents, these particles are so light they get lifted up and they go up in the air. Of course, that's not the only source, and anything that creates fine particles will also contribute to dust. So when you're doing building work, traffic also makes fine dust because the tyres wear on the road, the road surface itself wears and makes tiny rock particles, and all these things contribute. But in in a built environment where we live, a major, major source of dust is us. Yuck. Yuck, indeed. Let's go to uh, Ray. Ray, you are calling us from Cape Town. Good morning to you. Good morning, Reedy and Chris. I notice um, during the day that a lot of flying insects land in my pool, such as bees and butterflies, and they can't ever seem to, to fly out again. And I've always got to fish them out. I don't like to see them struggling there, obviously, and, and dying, you know, in water. So I, I, I was wondering why they, they, they can't fly off the water. Surely they lighten up, you know, seagulls land in water and off they go. Is it to do with the webbing on their, on their feet? Hello, Ray. Water is a really sticky molecule. And when these insects land on the water, some insects can walk on water because it has another property called surface tension. And this is down to this stickiness. The molecules of water are all attracting each other very tightly and pulling towards each other. And if the insect doesn't actually penetrate between the the molecules of water and break that surface tension, then it can float around on the surface. But if it does penetrate through the surface and get surrounded by water, it's very difficult for it to break the associations between the water molecules and it. For instance, if it's got a big surface area like a wing or something and that wing gets wetted, the water sticks onto the wing, the water sticks onto other water molecules and it's like being embedded in glue. And the insect cannot break free of those associations and fly off. 
Also, the water is heavy, and if you've got um, droplets of water on your body, they're going to weigh probably as much as your body does. And if you're a flying insect, it's one thing to lift your body off the ground. To carry two of you off the ground or off the, the surface of the swimming pool is really tricky, especially because you need to flap your wings fast, and if your wings now weigh a lot more than they should... then it's much harder for the muscles to operate the wings. It's also much harder for the insect's nervous system to get the timing right because a heavier thing doesn't flap as fast as a lighter thing. And as a result, the nervous impulses that are arriving expecting the wings to fly in a coordinated way at a certain speed are going to run into more difficulty compensating for the increased weight on the wings. So all those things, I suspect, come together and make it very difficult for insects to take off from your swimming pool. Thank you very much, Ray. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Charles in Fishhook. I love your question. Hi, Charles. <laughs> Hi, Ray. Okay. You know I'm the exception to that rule, hey? But anyway, carry on. Yes, I am. Carry on, please. <laughs> the question, Chris, um, women multitask better than men. Um, is it something that's different in the brain? And my wife, she's, she writes to the left hand, but she can't throw the left hand. She throws the right hand. Now. Can you explain <laughs> Okay, multitasking. Well, um, this is a dangerous territory for anyone to go into (laughs) where they try and say there are differences between men and women, but there certainly are. And if you do brain scans, you will find things that women outperform men on and certain other psychometric tasks. Women are much better than men at certain things. There are certain things that men are much better than women at doing. And interestingly, I was watching a programme last night It was a, a BBC documentary, and they they had been looking at an individual who was born a woman but wanted to be a man and elected to undergo a course of hormone therapy with male hormones. And it was a unique opportunity for a psychologist and neuroscientist to do progressive tests and scans on this individual to see how the behaviour changed over the course of a six-month exposure to male hormones. And they were able to show, admittedly, and we've got to be very careful how you interpret this because it's an N of one, it's one person. So you can't draw firm conclusions, but it's nonetheless interesting. What they showed, for instance, is that linguistic performance in this lady uh, deteriorated a bit when she became um, more masculinized owing to the male hormones. So asked to recall as many words as you could in 20 seconds, beginning with the letter P, for example. Men do worse than that on mm. that sort of task than women do. Uh, asked to interpret certain words or facial expressions. This person performed less well after exposure to male hormones compared to uh, when she had uh, purely female hormones. And that, again, is a strong trait associated with being female. Women do much better at looking at faces. If you show them a strip of the face, which is the eyes and the corners of the eyes, and you say, what uh, emotion do you think this person is experiencing, then women outperform men on that sort of empathy test every time. The flip side of the coin, uh, this um, person, once she'd been exposed to male hormones, had a much better motor function, so she was able to perform various fine motor tasks more rapidly, significantly more rapidly than she had before the hormones. Mm. So that was one thing. Um, There's an increase in physical strength because testosterone is an anabolic steroid. It bulks you up. It's what people who want to win on the Tour de France, let's say, might consider taking uh, to increase their muscle bulk and therefore their strength. So there's a range of different things. It it also includes things like reading a map and and three-dimensional visualisation as well. Um, 
men tend to do better on that on average than women do. So there are definitely differences. Why these differences exist, it must have some evolutionary origin, it must have something to do with our biology. Um, whether it's relevant to the modern world, though, and whether it will persist into the future um, might, might not be so true. Charles, thank you very much. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Yeah, we've got the Naked Scientist in the house and we are stripping science down to its bare essentials. If you are curious about the way uh, the way in which the world functions or your body or technology, this is your platform. Give us a call on 021-446-0567 Mbali in Ilovo. Hi. Hi, Reedy. Hi, Chris. Um, I wanted to find out, I suffer from androgenetic alopecia and I've tried a whole lot of things, including lasers. So I wanted to know, would uh, the stem cell technology work in terms of trying to regenerate this, um, the skin that's uh, not working anymore? Hello, and sorry to hear about your predicament. Uh, the answer is that I think in the future it probably will help you. Right now, there's no safe way to do this, but... In the last six months or so, we have discussed briefly here on 702 uh, a new discovery that was made by scientists. I think they were in... they may have been in America. And what they were doing was looking at how we can regenerate hair follicles because alopecia is where you lose hair. And there are a number of reasons why alopecia can occur. Uh, They can be immune reasons, they can be what we call idiopathic reasons, it just happens, people lose their hair, and also you can lose hair because of exposure to uh, male hormones. There's a gene which is carried on the X chromosome, which makes people sensitive to their own testosterone. Most blokes, unfortunately, succumb to this, and you get that certain pattern of hair loss. In terms of putting the hair back, if we can make new hair follicles, then we would be able to treat the problem, because we could implant new follicles and then new hair would grow. And a group in the state have demonstrated that there are ways to take a tiny structure called a dermal papilla, which is a little clutch of very primitive cells that sit underneath the hair follicle and make these things grow and divide in the laboratory. And when they put these little blobs of cells into tissue that doesn't have any hair on it, they can make hairless skin actually begin to grow new hairs. And if they can get this working right, then you'd have a way of taking someone's own hair follicles, just a few of them, get some of these little clutches of very primitive cells that can have this effect. You grow them in the laboratory and then you would just do little tiny injections in the skin with these cells and then give it six weeks or so, and new hairs should begin to form growing through the scalp. And so I think in the future, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but in a number of years in the future, I think we'll be able to do this, and then we won't have to go and uh, resort to hair movement treatments in future, where you take hair follicles with hairs in them out and move them around on your head to, to compensate. So I think there is hope, and hopefully it'll happen before it gets too serious for me. Okay, thank you very much, Mbali. Thank you. Jeffrey in Germiston, hi. Hi, good morning. How are you? Very well. Your comment, please? Um, I want to know why you don't uh, sneeze when you sleep. I'll listen on the radio. Why you don't sneeze when you sleep? Hmm, I haven't noticed that. Chris? Perhaps that's because you're asleep, really. <laughs> the, I think that you, 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 can, um, you can sneeze yeah. to a certain extent when you're asleep, but probably the reason is that you sneeze less when you're asleep for the simple reason that you breathe less when you're asleep. When you're active during the day, you're breathing more, you're more active, that's why you breathe more, and you'll be breathing in more particles and more things that are likely to make you sneeze. When you go to sleep at night, your respiratory rate is slower and deeper, 
and some people may breathe through their mouth, which may reduce the risk of a sneeze, especially if you've got a clogged up nose already. And also, everything dries up and gets all uh, sticky when you go to sleep in order to reduce secretions. And so that probably also will stop things irritating quite so much. And when you're asleep, you're less sensitive to everything that's going on around you. But I've certainly woken up in the middle of the night and, and had a good sneeze. So I think there's no guarantee you won't sneeze at, at night time, but there are various factors that make sneezing less likely, probably because exposure to what might make you sneeze is less pronounced during the, during the night time. Esme in Seapoint, hi. Hi, I'd like to know something about graphene, which has been written up in the newspapers, discovered at Manchester University, and that it will be capable of doing things like fixing spinal cords and desalinating water. Can you tell me something about it? Yes, hello. Well, graphene is uh, the substance that won a Nobel Prize just a couple of years ago for André Geim, who is a professor at Manchester University. The fact is that we've probably all played with graphene in our lifetimes without even realising it. And that's because when you look at a pencil lead, that is graphite. And graphite are lots of sheets of graphene stacked up together. And they look like, if you looked down a microscope, chicken wire. They're a honeycomb shape, rings of carbon atoms, six carbon atoms, all in a big lattice, but they're just a single atom thick. And in graphite, they're all stacked up into millions and millions of these sheets. And when you write with your pencil, what you're doing is transferring some of those sheets off of the end of the pencil lead onto the paper surface because the sheets are not very tightly bound together. They're a bit like shale, if you, if you know the rock that shale, little layers that easily part company. But along the lines of the sheets, it's incredibly strong. The interesting thing about graphene is that it conducts electricity extremely well. And because it's therefore very strong and very stable, but also electrically conductive, it has enormous potential. At the moment, when we want to make, say, touchscreen devices like a tablet or a, or a phone that you can put your finger on the screen and select things and move little icons around, that's using a range of semiconductor materials that can detect where your finger is and then tell the computer where your finger is on the screen. With graphene, you might be able to do the same thing because it's so thin that you can see straight through these uh, lattices because they're mainly all empty space. But it's very cheap because we're using indium tin oxide at the moment for those screens and it's very expensive. If we could substitute graphene, then we'd have something that does all the same jobs. It's equivalently strong, but very, very cheap. And in fact, a number of manufacturers, including Samsung, are starting to make devices that do incorporate graphene. So we're going to see, and in fact, one science communicator said to me earlier this year that he thinks 2014 is going to be graphene's big year when things really begin to start happening. So I guess it's a question of watch this space to see what people are going to do with it. Chris, I've got a tweet here. How can we verify that nutritional data labels on our food are accurate? Well, it's really tricky. If you've got a good regulator, then they're keeping an eye on all this because they they do tests and they check what people are writing about their products and they check products. Unfortunately, uh, we are beholden to the people who make those products to be honest mm. and to not and and we and we rely on them um, actually getting tested by these regulatory authorities to make sure that, that, that they're not lying or getting things in the products that, that aren't supposed to be there. But it varies from country to country and also some products can fall completely outside the scope of the guidelines. So, for instance, a friend of mine in Western Australia who's um, doing a lot of DNA technology, he decided a few years ago that he would go and buy 
a whole heap of Chinese herbal remedies mm -hmm. off the internet, and then he did DNA analysis on them, and he was gobsmacked by what he was finding, things that should never have been in there, including potent toxic plants, plants <gasps> which we know are highly poisonous. He, he could detect the DNA of these plants, proving that they were in these medicines. It didn't say anything about this on the surface of the medicine, and because it was regarded as a folk remedy, it, it was outside the scope of, the, of most regulations in, in Australia, and customs were legitimately able to bring these things into the country. Now they're changing the regulations and they're changing the way they scrutinise things, and they're increasingly sending things to my colleague to test in yeah. order to make sure that this doesn't happen. So the answer is, you've got to be quite careful. Very, very careful. I see Thomas has stopped eating his breakfast, Chris. What was he eating? Chinese herbal remedies? Who on earth knows what he was eating? His plate was full. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. We'll chat to you next week. It's a pleasure. Thank you, really. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.